Well, one of the fun things about being a close church family is that we learn things about each other. For example, right, many of us love Christmas. But there's a certain someone amongst us who really, really loves Christmas. And her name shall remain nameless, Jody Jorgensen, who really loves Christmas. So much so that on Facebook last Thursday, May 25th, she posted on Facebook, seven months till Christmas. So excited. Now, I love Christmas a lot, too. One of the classic Christmas stories I love to watch every year is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now, we all know the story, right? The Grinch hates Christmas so much, he especially hates the Who's down in Whoville enjoying Christmas. So he sneaks down to Whoville to steal all the Who toys, all the Who food, all the Who decorations, anything and everything Who that has to do with Christmas, he steals. They say that his heart was two sizes too small. He even outright lies to Cindy Lou Who when she wakes up and she catches him stealing the Christmas tree. See, he thinks he can stop the celebration of Christmas if he takes all their stuff. There's no Christmas if there's no stuff. It's a really bad Grinch. Remember that great song about how mean the Grinch is? He's a... You're as bad as a banana with a greasy black peel. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul. You have all the tender sweetness of a seasick crocodile. Your heart is full of unwashed socks. Not a very nice description. I wouldn't touch him with a 39 and a half foot pole. Did you know that the word Grinch never existed till Dr. Seuss came up with the word as he wrote that book? We now use it to describe anybody who's unpleasant or mean and wants to squash another person's joy. As we come today to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is a Grinch. He's a super Grinch. In some ways, he makes Dr. Seuss's Grinch look like a nice guy. Jonah chapter 3 ends with God showing his amazing grace to the Ninevites. It says, when God saw what... What they did, how they turned from the evil ways. God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What's Jonah's response? Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah's a Grinch. He wanted judgment to come upon them, and when it didn't, he got angry. In the beginning of chapter 3, Jonah was finally obedient to God and went to preach to Nineveh. He preached word for word exactly what God wanted him to do. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And we saw last week that the people of Nineveh are cut to the quick. They take God's message to heart and call for a fast for both man and beast. They put on sackcloth and even turn from their wicked ways. Jonah came with a message of judgment that offered an opportunity of God's grace For all the people, including the kings and nobles, from the greatest to the least, as they turned to God. Jonah preached a simple message in a godless foreign land and had a 100% success rate. God responded to their repentance totally consistent with his character. And he did not bring about the destruction that he had said. If you think about it, for the most part, throughout the Bible... The prophets are ignored. 
The prophets are persecuted. Sometimes we even see the prophets are running for their very lives alone or with with just very few people heeding their message. But not Jonah, right? Jonah is perhaps the most successful prophet in the whole Bible. Depending on how you understand Jonah 4.11 and its reference where it says there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. If the 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left are spiritually ignorant adults, then the population of Nineveh is around 300,000. If the 120,000 people are young children because they've yet to learn the difference between their right hand and left hand, then the total population is around 600,000. So in less than 40 days, with the simplest of message, somewhere between 300,000 and 600,000 persons were reached without mailers, no radio broadcasts, no internet. Think about this now. Tampa and Toledo are cities of around 300,000 people. Milwaukee, Memphis are cities of around 600,000 people. Now imagine every one of those people in one of those cities, everyone, every single person coming to repent under the message of God. The power of God infused with the conviction of the Holy Spirit brought an incredible miracle of repentance in Nineveh. So does the text say that Jonah rejoiced in the power of the Lord? Wouldn't you rejoice? Whole city? That, that Jonah, does it say that Jonah was amazed at, at God's grace and the movement of the Spirit? That Jonah was profoundly humbled that God chose him to give this message? That Jonah was overflowing with joy at the miraculous number of repentance and celebrated a God of mercy and love and forgiveness. Jonah is perhaps the most successful prophet numerically of the whole Old Testament. And what does the text say? It says he was angry. Jonah's heart was two sizes, too small. All he could see was his hate. All he wanted was God's justice. All he cared about was judgment. If you're not there already, turn to Jonah chapter 4. Follow along as I read. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade until he should see what should become of the city. But the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come over Jonah, that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on his head so that Jonah was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. 
But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Father, we pray with open hearts and open minds for you and your word and your truth to challenge us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 is one of those stunning verses, right? God does this amazing work, and Jonah is displeased exceedingly. He's angry. The Hebrew uses strong language to describe Jonah's anger, using words that that come from evil and calamity. The verse could be translated to Jonah, it was a tragedy, it was a great disaster, and he became angry. Why did Jonah get so angry? Why was he exceedingly displeased? Why was it a great disaster? Verse 2 tells us. Jonah is angry because the Lord had compassion on these evil Ninevites. For Jonah, it was a catastrophe that they averted God's judgment and received God's grace. God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's love made Jonah exceedingly angry. God in chapter 3 verse 9 is described as having the exact same kind of anger as Jonah is described at. A fierce anger, a burning anger, an inflamed anger towards the Ninevites. They truly deserved God's anger. They deserved God's justice. The incredible wicked things that they had done. See, there's a big difference there, though, between God's anger And Jonah's anger, even though the same words are used to describe it. Because you see, though, God's anger is real. God's anger is balanced. He has the perfect balance of anger and grace, of justice and mercy, of peace and punishment, of wrath and compassion. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience and kindness and love opens up the door of repentance for everyone. Even the most gruesomely wicked Ninevites. Even you and me. See, Jonah was angry at God for being God. He knew exactly what God was like. His description of God in verse 2 is the classic definition of God. It comes from God himself. In Exodus chapter 34, God reveals himself to Moses. And he says to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The heart of this verse is the central, the fundamental expression of God's character in the Old Testament along with first being used in Exodus 34, and lastly in, in our passage here in Jonah 4.2, this verse is also quoted in Numbers 14.18, Nehemiah 9.17, Psalm 86.15, 103.8, and Joel 2.13. The truth of this verse is foundational 
to a proper understanding of who God is. As I understand it, this verse is also regularly used in the Jewish synagogue and training on, you know, what is the definition of God's character? If you stopped a Jewish child from a devout Jewish family and asked them, how would you describe God's character? They would say, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Guess what? Who knew this? Jonah knew this. Jonah believed this. Jonah quotes this. The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place was that he knew that if they repented, God would not bring about the justice that they deserved. Jonah's finding fault with God for being God. Jonah wanted no part of showing grace to the Ninevites. Jonah had made his judgment and the Ninevites, and they all deserved only God's justice and condemnation. He was so convinced of his position that while the wave of repentance is going on in the city of Nineveh, while, while Jonah is still in the city, he realizes that God just might forgive them. And in verse 3, he says to the Lord to take his life. Why does he say that? Jonah's confused. Jonah's confused. Jonah's distraught. The Ninevites were enemies of God's people. They had tortured and brutalized them in the past. And in less than 50 years, this same nation was going to come and conquer Israel. They would come down into Judah. King Hezekiah would be locked up in Jerusalem on the brink of destruction, if not for God's miraculous intervention. And now, rather than seeing their destruction, he witnesses their repentance. Now, rather than being the prophet God used to bring down Israel's enemy, right? He was the prophet God used to bring forgiveness to the enemy. Dying was better than living if that meant the enemy was to live. Now, folks, for the most part, if we just apply these verses directly, there are few of us dealing with this level of hatred. It's kind of like the, you know, Holocaust, the Jews and the Nazis. This is a level, this is a great level of hatred. We have known God's blessings, especially here in the U.S. For the most part, we, we haven't really experienced the kind of persecution and oppression that Israel received from the Assyrians. But there are many principles here that we can apply to each of our lives. See, Jonah was mad at God for not meeting his expectations. Jonah was angry with God because Jonah didn't get what he wanted. Jonah was distraught by God's actions because Jonah was convinced what the right thing to do was. And God didn't do that. Has God ever done something that just didn't make sense to you? Has God ever done something that that wasn't what you expected God to do? Have you ever become angry with God because you didn't get what you wanted or what you thought you deserved or what you thought God was supposed to do? See, somehow we regularly think we know exactly what God should do. We've got all figured out. We've tamed God. We've fashioned him into our likeness, into our thinking. But God is not tamed by us. God is not subject to our thinking. He doesn't meet our expectations. Let's make sure and not be like Jonah, who put God in his box 
but rather let's kneel before the unpredictable, sovereign ruler of our lives and of our world, and let's say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever God's will is, that's what we want. See, sometimes we think God works by two sets of books, right? One for his followers and one for those who are far away from God. Jonah himself relied on God's mercy. Jonah is confident of God's compassion for him. Jonah is sure that God is merciful and forgiving to him. And at the same time, he believes that, that God, is, God is wrong for showing mercy and compassion and forgiveness to the Ninevites. See, the Ninevites, the Ninevites, these are really bad people. They're, they're worse than him. See, Jonah, I'm, I'm part of the chosen people of Israel. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a prophet. He worshiped the one true God. He lived and loved the Old Testament. Of course, God would show him mercy and compassion and forgiveness. But not those Ninevites. They knew nothing about the one true God. They worshiped a whole host of false idols. They purposely violated God's command and enjoyed it. They were brutal and wild and unclean. Of course, God would bring a judgment on them rather than show mercy to those people. They needed to get what they deserved. So those close to God get a loving God and a gracious God. But those far away from God get a judging and wrathful God. Folks, we need to guard our hearts against such fallacy. The same God that reached out in kindness to Jonah and the Israelites is the same God that reached out in kindness to the Assyrians. The same God that judged the sins of Jonah and the Assyrians is the same God that's judged the sins of the Assyrians. The same God that loves us just as much loves those that we might find less acceptable. See, the only difference between us and a non-Christian is in us. The difference is Christ. It's not about us. It's always about Christ. Remember that central verse of God's character quoted in John 4, 2, and that God first uh, spoke in Exodus 34? It starts off these next few verses from Psalm 103, starting at verse 8, and it clearly teaches us the concept, it's not about us. It's always about God and His grace and His mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God doesn't give us what we deserve. And it's not about us being special. It's not about us meriting any favor with God. It's all about Jesus and who he is. He's the special one. It's on account of him that we have the grace and mercy of God that we don't deserve. He revealed himself to us that we might fear and worship him. God showers his love and acceptance through Christ for all people. But we often can place hoops, you know, people have to jump through before they get our love and acceptance. Back in the 80s when I was a youth pastor, high school boy that was uh, attending our group 
uh, put his faith in Christ. He was a rebel, a 1980s rebel, wild hair. And you knew you were a rebel as a guy in the 80s if you had an earring. It was not a common thing in the 80s. So after his profession of faith in Christ, we're celebrating his conversion in the church and he's on fire for Jesus Christ. A leader comes up to me and says, so now when are you going to get that earring out of his ear? I was a young man in the ministry, but the Lord gave me the words to say at the moment. 1 Samuel 16, 7. He said, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Folks, we need to look at the people in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our world, through the eyes of Jesus. They might look completely different than us. They might have completely different ethnic backgrounds. They might have completely different voices and and dialects and colors. They might be tattooed. They might have piercings. They might have all these different things. And what is God challenging us? Man looks at the outward appearance. But we're supposed to look at the heart. Listen to the words of this song. Jesus, friend of sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth becomes so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around, but never looking up. I'm so double-minded. A plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts with what breaks yours. You love every lost cause. You reach for the outcast, for the leper and the lame. You're the reason that you came. Lord, I was that lost cause. I was the outcast. But you died for sinners just like me. A grateful leper at your feet. Because you are good. You are good and your love endures forever. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Folks, may that be true of us. May we see what God sees. May we have hearts that are open to receive and give the mercy of God. May we have hearts that are open to receive and give the grace of God. May we have hearts that are overflowing to receive and give the love of God. May we have hearts that overflow with real compassion from a real God. May we have hearts that are open to be used by God to reach out to each other, to our neighbors and friends and community, extending God's mercy and grace and love and compassion to everyone. Not like Jonah. Let's not be Jonah. Let's not be Grinches. Let's be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, a real Loving, dynamic Jesus Christ sharing real compassion. There's this fictional Hebrew story about Abraham. Abraham was sitting outside his tent one evening when he saw an old man, weary from age and journey, coming towards him. Abraham rushed out and greeted him and then invited him into his tent. There he washed the old man's feet and gave him food and drink and 
the old man immediately began eating without saying any prayer of blessing. So Abraham asked him, do you worship God? The old traveler replied, I worship only fire and and reverence no other God. Then when he heard this, Abraham became incensed and he grabbed the old man by the shoulder and threw him out of the tent back out into the cold air. When the old man had departed, God called to Abraham and asked where the stranger was. Abraham replied, I forced him out because he did not worship you. God answered, I loved him and had compassion on him for 80 years. Although he dishonors me, could you not endure him for one night? I would have the heart to see as our God sees. Well, the story continues there in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah is now left Nineveh. He's sitting outside the city to just wait to see what's going to happen. And as would be customarily, he builds a shelter for himself to protect himself from the weather. Shelter wasn't good enough, and he's in great discomfort from the heat. So God used the situation as an opportunity to teach Jonah a lesson about his grace and compassion. So God appoints this great plant to grow over Jonah, provides him with real shade and comfort, and Jonah is exceedingly glad. One commentator describes the reality of the scorching wind like this. During the period of a scorching east wind, the temperatures rise steeply, sometimes even climbing during the night, and it remains high, about 16 to 22 degrees above average. At times, every scrap of moisture seems to be extracted from the air so that the, the one has a curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn tighter than usual. Scorching east winds are particularly trying to the temper and tend to make even the mildest people irritable and fretful and to snap to one another for apparently no reason at all. God sent this east wind. God made this plant go. And then God sent a worm. He sent a worm to nibble up that plant so that plant would wither. And with the plant gone and the east wind making life unbearable, Jonah again just wants to be done with it all. He's angry about his situation. He feels justified to be angry about his situation. He's upset at this sudden loss of of comfort from the plant dying. He pities the death of the plant. As he's sitting there in judgment on Nineveh, he is pitying the death of the plant. He feels sorry for himself and for this plant. Now, God is awesome. He has set up this perfect object lesson for Jonah. And now God applies that lesson immediately to him and to Nineveh. God says to Jonah, Since you pitied and grieved the death of the plant, should I not also pity and be grieved with something far greater, this great city, the people of Nineveh? Should I not show mercy to these people? And then the book of Jonah just ends. Right there, just completely ends unresolved. We have no idea if Jonah learned the lesson from that object lesson. Maybe his heart was full of conviction. Maybe he realized that he cared more about the destruction of a plant than the destruction of a great city of hundreds of thousands of people. Did he finally see that God's compassion for him and his failings was the very same, the exact same compassion that drove God to respond mercifully and gracious? To the people of Nineveh. Was Jonah humbled 
by the brashness of his sin and see himself for who he really is, a sinner in need of a savior? We don't know. The story is left completely open with no commentary, no application, no call to action. Yet, by the way it ends, it kind of puts the reader into the story. Now that, that we, as we, we read the story, we have to come to our own conclusion. We are left with one awesome concluding reality that our God is a God of compassion. Our God is a God of real, significant, life-changing compassion. But how about us? We've seen throughout the book of Jonah how God acted in sovereign control over the whole story. From the fish and the, the waves and the storm all the way through to the end with the plant and the worms and the wind. So powerfully responding. So powerfully directing the action. We have seen how Jonah responded over and over again in anger and in selfishness and in fear. So completely caught up in himself. So so completely caught up in what he thought was right. So completely caught up in his own self-righteous spiritualization and his, and his judgment. He couldn't see the miraculous work of God, the, the miraculous grace of God. And we're left to wonder. If I was Jonah, how would I have responded? Am I so different than Jonah? Would I have been ready to accept God's grace for a people who didn't meet my standard of acceptable behavior? Makes me think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility Count others more significant than yourself. The Bible says that. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Folks, one of the greatest signs of a life changed by God isn't just correct doctrine, but it's correct application. You see, Jonah knew his theology. He knew his God. He even knew God's grace and mercy and love and compassion for him. But he needed his heart to be broken by what breaks God's heart. Jonah needed humility. He needed to see himself clearly and to see God more clearly. He needed to get in touch with his sin, his own unworthiness. He needed to get in touch with God and the unsurpassing greatness of his love and grace. Does it sound like anybody you know? Sounds like somebody I know. Thomas John Carlyle has written a poem entitled, You, Jonah. And it ends with the following words. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas to come around to his way of loving. Is God waiting for you to come around to his way of of loving. Remember the Grinch? All those who's down in Whovilles, right? They're still singing. They're still celebrating Christmas, even though he has stolen everything to do with Christmas. He couldn't believe it. He thought Christmas would end by focusing on get rid of all the stuff. But he learned something new. As we hope Jonah learned something new. As we pray today that we will learn something new. The Grinch says, maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. 
and what happened that day in Whoville, they say, the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. How big is your heart? Does it need to grow? Does it beat with a passion and a love for Jesus Christ? Is your heart broken by what breaks Jesus' heart? Is your heart overflowing with what makes Jesus' heart overflow? So today, evaluate. Are you quick to judge? Do you offer the same grace to others that God had given to you? Be angry at God for not meeting your expectations. Be honest and commit right now to be that person who gives out the very grace and love of God that he himself has received. To all people. To all people, regardless of what they look like or where they're from. All people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we pray that your word and your spirit would penetrate our hearts and lives. And on this day, we would evaluate. Are we like Jonah? I mean, are, do we really feel that somehow you have one set of books for us and another set of books for other people? That somehow we kind of earn your favor and the other people just earn your judgment? Lord, break our hearts. Give us wisdom to see that the very same love, the very same Jesus that died for our sins is the very same love and the very same Jesus that calls everyone, regardless of race and ethnicity and heritage and anything. Give us wisdom. Give us changed hearts. Change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.